Yay! What are we talking about? I don't know. Your life's been kind of crazy, right? My life has been really crazy. <laughs> I am in the process of trying to buy a townhouse. Hell yeah! Yes! It's very exciting, but it's also like really stressful. So I've already started packing, even though I don't officially have the place yet. Yeah, but like you put in your offer, right? And it was accepted. So now yeah. you're going through the final steps. Yeah. So we have, yeah, yeah we're in the that like weird limbo <laughs> in between home run yeah type. yeah 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 it's been fun <laughs> yeah i came over to drop my stuff off and you already had boxes up and i was like oh shoot you've already got boxes up yeah it's weird having i mean all i've packed really is my dvds that i never watch anymore and your books and some of my books you that say, whole top that whole top you say list. like all i've packed but that's like half your stuff Oh no, no, no. There is more. There are so oh, many more I know. books. I'm just like, saying books. All in of general. these boxes right now will be filled with books. Like yeah. nothing else will go in them. <laughs> yeah, that's like half your life. My dad gives me so much crap because he's he's the one who's like, You have a Kindle. Why are you not buying Kindle books? And I was like, It's not the same, Dad. It's not. It's not the same. You can't smell a Kindle book. Okay, thank you. That's like <laughs> that's a huge part for me too. Is I'm I like, the awkward sniffer in the library. <laughs> I like to smell the books too. I like to smell the books. I like to have the books in my hands. Yeah. yeah. I I literally buy purses based on how many books they can hold. <laughs> I'm not the only one. That's reading, good to know. Reading is my life. Like reading to me is video games to you. Like well, it's I mean, my life. Yeah. <laughs> It's my life. Sorry. Some Bon Jovi. I'm leaving. I mean, at least it was bon Edit that out. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm not editing it. Welcome to Difficult Damsels. Yeah. Uh, Difficult Damsels. I'm Rachel. I'm Kat. <laughs> it's been, um, it's been, it's only been a week since we recorded Isabella of France, the She-Wolf of France. It's been a crazy week for you. It's been kind of a sad week for me. Yeah. We were literally in the middle of recording our last episode when I got the news that my former boss and mentor passed away kind of really unexpectedly. So this week's been... Been rough. It's been very rough, yeah. but I don't know. Life is a precious thing. Yep. Appreciate the people in your life. Yeah. Tell them you love them. Don't argue with them. And if you don't... Don't end any conversation with someone with an on an argument yeah i've always strongly believed in that but like yeah there's there's certain things that make you like remember you that. you <laughs> never know what your last conversation is gonna be oh yeah and i i remember my last conversation with him and i'm really glad it was what it was but we were basically doing the um that new deal management program i was telling you about mm -hmm. we're I was part of the testing for it and we were getting to the point where we were gonna give a yay or a nay for putting this new program in place and I, I was speaking up and just saying like you know i'm not gonna approve it if i'm not 100 percent comfortable and he said something to the lines of um we wouldn't expect anything less from you oh yeah no <laughs> yeah and i just laughed and he laughed because that was very much our professional relationship is yeah. I, I had to know the ins and out 
of everything I did and I questioned everything. And so he, he's well, that's used why to you're it. so valuable. And that's why you were involved in that process. Yeah. But so, I, I worked, we used to memory. work together yeah. and oh, I yeah. worked under him Way for a little bit. You were obviously much closer to him than I was. I didn't really know him as well. Yeah. I didn't really work with him as much. I didn't know him as well. I mean, I had conversations with him. He was a really great guy. I mean, yeah, I had, I had no hard feelings towards him when I left and yeah, he was, it was, it's a big loss. <laughs> That, for the company for the world. That was the thing that like really struck me is um you could read all the uh, the virtual memorials online and literally everyone talked about how he was the type of leader that literally embodied the idea of my door is always open mm-hmm. no matter what was going on and and it's true his door was always open always open no matter yeah. what he had on his plate he like so many people were in and out of his office just to troubleshoot whatever they were going through or just talk about life and. He always made time for people. Yeah. He was just an amazing, amazing human. Yeah. Um, and those are so rare and it's really upsetting that, yeah. that we lost him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to cry <laughs> if we keep talking about Sorry. it. So we're going <laughs> to, we're um, going to segue. But yeah, so that's been my week. Yeah. Um, so the episode we are doing today, episode five is uh, part one. This will be our first two-parter. Yay. And it's, it's going to be Joan of Arc. She came at me. <laughs> when did you text me? Like Monday? I think so. Monday. I don't know. She texted me and she's like, yeah, this is going to have to be a two-parter because I'm on like 20 pages of notes. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> well, yeah, I was like, she hasn't even been captured yet. And I, this is going to be too long. So we we decided to break it up. But we did a, we did a little movie preview. We need to stop doing these. <laughs> okay. I don't remember that movie being so bad. Well, and it was long it, it was, was very so long. long it was it was they were whoever the the director was was clearly a director of battle movies because he paid so much attention and so much time to like the fighting and we're like we get it they're fighting so, move on <laughs> so speaking of which so the name of the movie was um i believe the messenger, the messenger joan of arc and um it's mila jovovich who's playing joan of arc and the director's the same director as fifth element what yes I looked that How up. How did you mess this up so bad? I, don't, I, <laughs> I think it would have been fine. So as I was doing my research, like a lot of it did kind of line up. Was Fifth Element before or after? Before. Oh, that's even worse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of hokey, kind of like Fifth Element, but historical fiction I setting. just, it, it was almost like, okay, this is going to piss some people off. It was, it was almost like Twilight where like, it had so much freaking potential. You can piss off the Twilight people. I was Come a Twilight at us. person, so <laughs> no, it was it was like that first Twilight movie where it had so much potential, but everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Like there were some really strong actors in there, but no one no one seemed like a good actor because it was just so yeah. bad. Well, and they just embellished certain parts, like yeah. the visions in yeah. the beginning. The, yes. the beginning of the movie took like a half an hour just to get her out of long. her field. Well, it's yeah, it started with her as a little girl. And she got like her first vision, right? Yeah, she was like laying in a field, and I, it was interesting. <laughs> They're trying to be very artistic with it in parts that they didn't need to. But they failed miserably. It wasn't yeah. even good artistic. So I, I can't, I can't even honestly say I would recommend the movie. But <laughs> no, please don't ever. Like we watched it for you. We took one for the team. You're welcome. We'll tell you everything that. Ha- well, Rachel will tell you everything that happened. <laughs> but yeah, so that was our prep for that. The story of Joan of Arc has always been something I was curious about. Up until the research for this episode, I've only ever really known the most rudimentary of facts. 
She was a teenage female warrior that fought for France, inspired by visions she claimed she received from God, and then was captured by the English and burned for a heretic and a witch. Is that kind of what you knew? Pretty much. I don't, I don't even think I knew that she was burned. I knew that she was captured, but I don't... Yeah, I didn't, really. didn't know she I just. Was I really just knew the name. Yeah. Because it's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the... I mean, that's kind of the thing I came across, but... um. There's a Catholic church down the street that's named after her. Well, so in the Catholic church, she is a saint. She's an inspiration for many a young girl who dreamed of being more than just a queen or a princess. But who exactly was Joan of Arc? That was always kind of the crux of my curiosity. I wanted to know the motives for her actions and the context for which her actions were made possible. Didn't they call her Jean in the movie? Jean, yeah. Jean of Arc? Jean. I, I need you to say it like that. I need you I, to say it French. I don't or think not I at can, all. I, ca- I cannot do it. <laughs> no, we don't even try to start talking in accents. Tell them what happens when you try to talk in accents. I, I end up sounding like an Indian. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's like the only, that's my default accent. Oh, okay. I hope I didn't offend anyone. Um, I no, just, we're not trying to offend anyone. That's just my, get offended, please go away. Any, it doesn't matter what kind of accent I do, uh, it just ends in that. It does, and it's really fun. <laughs> It's really fun. She does start off strong. You do. Sometimes you start off real strong. But Look, then I'm I... like, and three, two, there it is. I've been practicing <laughs> a lot of the uh, French names, so I'll try. But I'm calling her Joan, okay? It's easier Jean. for me. Jean. 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 <laughs> so as we are beginning to find out, nothing in history ever happens in a vacuum. And the story of Joan of Arc is no different. Plot. Ooh. <laughs> I would imagine that almost everyone has at the very least heard of Joan of Arc, and she is unique to history in that her name has been recorded and remembered without having ever been a ruler of a nation. Nor did she earn a place in history because she was the daughter of a ruler, the wife, or a mother. She was a woman, or rather, a girl, who exists in history entirely on her own. And as I tell the story of Joan of Arc, I'd like everyone to remember that she was only 19 years old when she died. God, that's so upsetting. So we, the last few episodes, we've always joked about how young they were when things started, but they, I mean, they lived full lives. They, yeah, for the most part, they either, you know, went into obscurity and they might've been in prison for 13 years or or (laughs) Eleanor. Yeah. (laughs) But they, yeah, they got to live full lives. Yeah. And you got to think that, to be in history at this time, you have to have done a lot. Like, it's not nowadays where you have an Instagram account and you're famous. Yeah, that's what makes Joan so unique. She's one of, um, and this is what we're going to find out, she's one of the most well-documented women in medieval history, which was very unique. Um, Even queens, you often, a lot of your information is just secondary. Yeah, there are side notes still. But with Joan, a lot of the stuff we know about her, including the letters she dictated, Mm They come directly from her during the trials and the Inquisition that wrote down everything she said. Oh. Yeah. So wow. we a lot of the information we have is actually a primary source from Joan herself. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Write everything down, guys, unless you're planning on committing a murder. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe write it down, but then burn it. <laughs> burn it. Okay. Oh. So a little historical context for this time period. Joan was born in 1412, and the same year, the Medici family are made the official bankers of the papacy. You at all familiar with the Medici? I am Medicis? very familiar okay. with the Medicis because I watched the Medicis. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Such a good show. That is so, aside from like female monarchs, the other 
part of history that like I'm a huge geek over is the Italian bankers. They're bankers, but they basically run Italy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the Medici's, I learned about them back in high school. It was like one page in my history book. And I was like, hold on. I, were, need, I don't I need more than this. They, okay. It could have been mentioned in my history class, but I wasn't really paying attention in school. <laughs> I was it, the child who was bored in the background drawing or writing. Or I, it was one of those things where it was like one page in the history book. And then we went on to talk about, I don't know, probably the hundred years war yeah, <laughs> that I wasn't interested in at the time. But I was like, wait, who are the, Mid I'm sorry, the original Italian mafia, please explain. Yeah. They're literally the poster people, poster family for money and power gets you everything. Yeah. And then to hold that money and power, but we're not talking about. I like to poison people. No, but we will at some point. <laughs> I'm excited. Talk about okay. at least one Medici. Yes. Later down the road, I have a written. <gasps> okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just got really excited. I think I know who you're gonna talk about. Maybe possibly. Who? Oh. I don't know. Take a guess. Start with C. Yes. 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 <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm so excited. Okay. I'm so excited too. <laughs> um, that will be spoiler alert. A ways down the road, but yeah, she's on the list. Yes. So in 1417, the use of street lighting appears for the first time in London. Imagine that. Street lighting is right? so exciting. <laughs> now we're just like, nah. <laughs> From 1414 to 1418, the Council of Constance is formed to end the Western Schism within the Catholic Church that had seen the Avignon Papacy split from Rome. It marks an increased rise in papal power and resulted in several church reformers being accused of heresy and condemned to being burned at the stake. I just giggle anytime you say a split between the church because I'm like, anytime you talk about the church, it's split. <laughs> yeah, but this was literally, I'm actually going to go into it a little later in this episode, but there were two churches yeah. like, and two popes. Yeah. Good. Why not? <laughs> not one good god? there's a lot of fighting <laughs> still one god uh, you always have all these different sects fighting each other and they all supposedly believe in the same god so still one god is gonna smite you because you said his name in this sorry <laughs> you're rambling <laughs> that's gonna happen a lot you're, i apologize you're gonna have plenty of time to like go into that in this episode i promise you <laughs> Catholic Church and I go way back. <laughs> 1420, the construction of the Forbidden City is completed in Beijing. It remains the largest palace in existence to this day. In 1422, the Ottoman Sultan, Murad II, attempts to siege Constantinople for three months, but ultimately fails to capture it. In 1427, the first witch hunts begin in Switzerland. And in 1428, the Aztec Triple Alliance forms, which essentially creates the Aztec Empire. Huh. So I've, I've ne I don't know anything about Aztecian. I don't know how to say it. Like, like the Aztecs and the Mayans. And yeah, they're, they're just like a, they just like are a thing. <laughs> Did you never study them in school? Uh, again, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they're very interesting. Oh. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I'll have to look and see if there's any women that come out oh, from that side of the world. I'm sure there were, but I don't know that it's going to be super recorded. True. <laughs> oh, I'll look into it. Mm. All right. So before I can tell you the story of Joan, I have to start off with the story of England and France. Which we've kind of been in. Yes. For a while now. So catch up, people. <laughs> so in order to tell the story, we kind of have to pick up a little bit where we left off with the last episode on the She-Wolf of France. When the line of the Capetian kings died out in France, the contenders for the French throne were Philip VI of France, nephew to Philip IV, and then Edward III of England, the grandson of Philip IV through his daughter, our Isabella of France. 
So these are the two contenders. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. Names, man. <laughs> it's going to get worse. <laughs> Actually, this yeah. site would be so much easier to follow if they all had their own individual unique you know names At and least identities. we don't have three Matildas in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so though the French magnates ultimately determined that the throne could not pass to Edward because it would first have to pass through Isabella, and France had already determined that the succession of the throne excluded women, they instead chose Philip of Valois, who would become Philip VI of France. Edward III would continue to press his claim to the French throne, instigating a period of war between England and France that would go on to become known as the Hundred Years' War, with the bulk of the battles being fought on French soil. When this conflict initially began, France was at the height of its power and considered one of the most powerful kingdoms in Europe. More than that, you're going to love this. <laughs> France had a very close relationship with the church. It was known as God's most Christian kingdom. And indeed, you will hear some of the kings later referred to as God's most Christian king by his own people. Not everyone, every single king cannot be God's most Christian king. I'm just saying. I mean, Charles the sixth could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he could, but everyone, he is the one. He is the only one. He has that name. <laughs> So Edward's tactic had been to rage and pillage the countryside of France rather than hold any territories. Did you just say rage and pillage? Maybe. <laughs> rage. It, it, no, it works. It's fine. Raid no, no, no. Rage pillage. is better. <laughs> I imagine like hardcore, like metal goth in the background. EDM music. <laughs> no, 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 no. Goth. Metal goth. <laughs> um, but the whole point was to just devastate French morale. His first major victory came on August 26, 1346, during the Battle of Cressy, with, which caused heavy casualties for the French and led the English to eventually capture the city of Calais. By capturing Calais, the English had a foothold on French soil and were able to keep troops permanently in northern France. Following the Battle of Cressy was the Battle of Portier, 10 years later in 1356, when the English forces enjoyed another huge battle victory and even captured the French king, King John II, and several of his nobles. <laughs> and then the next 50 years saw more battles and brief lulls in the fighting when peace could be agreed upon between the two countries. But the peace was always temporary, with the English kings constantly pressing their claim England for the French throne. doesn't know the word peace. They have no idea what it means. They just want to conquer everyone. But then they bitch about the Vikings wanting to conquer everything, even though they just wanted land that was farmable anyway. I mean, also, if you're fucking the Vikings if did try to they conquer did. them, they were though. terrible. I'm not saying they were great. I'm not condoning Vikingism. Is that a thing? That's a thing now. But if your war lasts more than a certain number of years, preferably the under the double digits, y'all need to chill. You lost. Nothing's <laughs> happening. You both suck. Go back to your homes. Well, but the thing is, they didn't lose, as you're gonna find out. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. So at the time of Joan of Arc's birth, Charles VI is king in France. Now, Charles VI is one of the original Mad Kings. Oh, he was... I thought we liked him. Oh, I'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> it's not that we don't like him. Um, it's just, it's very interesting that he's, he was called the, the most Christian king. But he's also the Mad King? Well, okay, so let me explain. Welcome to the church, guys. <laughs> So he was known to have psychotic episodes that incapacitated him, meaning he would disappear from public life intermittently. Oh, like legitimately the Mad King. He was he, legitimately. Gotcha. He, yeah. They don't 
they don't know exactly what he had. Um, people have speculated everything from schizophrenia to just, again, having like psychotic episodes and seizures, but yeah. they would literally leave him. Oh God, what's the word where you're literally, you're just sitting there, but nothing registers around you. Comatose? Yes. He would, he would be rendered comatose. Wow. So again, this is the I mean, king of France. I do that sometimes. <laughs> I just sit on my couch and nothing's happening. <laughs> so because this happened, um, he would, disappear from the public life intermittently and he was unable to rule France during these episodes and during these periods where he was physically incapable of ruling his brother Louis the Duke of Orléans and his cousin John the Fearless Duke of Burgundy led rival factions to control the king's regency and then the king's wife Isabeau to take it away from him or just to no. further his control so a regency is just, you're literally ruling in the name of somebody. It yeah. usually occurs if they're a child, because obviously a child can't yeah. rule. So they weren't, no one was ever going to take gotcha. the monarchy from him, yeah. but they were rivals as far as who could control the regency, which in turn meant who could control France. Gotcha. Okay. So his wife, Isabeau of Bavaria, also exercised unique power for a medieval queen during these periods. She's been added to my list. I was like, is she on the list? <laughs> so Isabeau of Bavaria is another really interesting medieval queen that often gets... Yes. Um, she often gets vilified by history, in part because of her role in delivering the French throne to England. I will explain. Unheard of. I will Unheard explain. <laughs> <laughs> There's also speculation that she had an affair with the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans. She pissed off the wrong person and she got really close to the king's brother and suddenly it's an affair. Because women can be killed for having an affairs. On affairs? That's not right. <laughs> Do you remember in the movie when you were like, those hats? Oh god, those god awful hats. And I was like, yeah, that's a henin. Oh, yeah. And it was the double henin. Yeah. She's the one that popular popularized like, heads. Yes. Like why? Yeah. I don't know, Pete. Fashion is weird. They're gonna look at what we're wearing today, like Okay, I look years. at what some people are wearing today, and I'm like, excuse me. They're gonna look at our leggings and be like, they weren't wearing clothes. Oh, I love leggings so much. You're lucky I put leggings on. Fuck. Be pantless. It's yes. fine. <laughs> so this was a period of incredible political turmoil within French politics, with two rival factions emerging in the Armagnac faction and the Burgundian faction. So again, the Duke of Burgundy, who was Charles the Sixth's cousin mm -hmm. leads the burgundian forces okay and then the armagnac for forces are gonna i'm gonna explain how they come to be all right <laughs> um i would hope so <laughs> so there's basically a lot of machiavellian politics at this point lots of backstabbing a couple of assassinations basically complete disasters freeze right over those like they're nothing but i'm gonna thing. go through <laughs> some of them but like this is why i was saying we that's just like the, the that's the fact that that is like listen oh Listen, I'm She's just saying I need somebody to do like a white queen, red queen, white princess, Spanish princess series on the Hundred Years War because there's so much political backstabbing in this time period. I don't have the time to go into it because we're doing time. an episode on Joan. <laughs> but yeah, lots of assassinations. I will go over one of them in a little bit. Okay. So the King of England, Henry V took advantage of this situation and invaded France in 1415. And Henry V was, he very much took after his great-grandfather, Edward III. He had been determined to claim his birthright to the French throne, just as Edward III had. 
and it is at the Battle of Agincourt that he gains a significant foothold in France. Now, this is one of the most famous medieval battles um, and English victories in that whole time period. The English were significantly outnumbered by the French and were expected to just be completely decimated. The French had approximately 14 to 15,000 men, while the English only had 8,500, and 7,000 of their number were longbowmen. Wow. The French cavalry, poetically remembered by history as the flower of French chivalry, was tired from marching all night and found themselves mowed down by the English longbowmen as they trudged through knee-deep mud. The French cavalry then that remained on horseback charged towards the English bowmen, not seeing the stakes that had been driven into the ground to protect the English oh, until it was too late. So mad because so many horses probably died because asshole humans. So a lot of horses died, a lot of soldiers were trampled, and then the soldiers who weren't were impaled on the stakes. The French army was utterly devastated. I just reduced the Battle of Agincourt to a mere paragraph, but yeah, go look it up. It's it's all about it's all about strategy. You can be outnumbered, but if you have exactly smart what strategists on your side who have all the ideas, stakes in pits. <laughs> so of the French nobles who had gathered to fight the battle, temporarily agreeing to a truce amongst themselves so as to fend off their foreign invaders, half of them had been trampled to death and the other half had been captured by the English. Henry V claimed at this point that he was the chaplain of God and that his actions were godly ordained. And his belief was reflected by the clerics of the time. An anonymous priest even wrote Henry V's victory, or wrote of his victory. Far be it from our people to ascribe the triumph to their own glory or strength. Rather, let it be ascribed to God alone, for whom is every victory, lest the Lord be wrathful at our ingratitude and at another time turn from us, which heaven forbid his victorious hand. His mere presence there and all yeah. of the success he was having people viewed it as we are being punished by God and he is God's chosen. Gotcha. <laughs> so the end result was England taking over the Northern portion of France, which included Rouen, Roms. <laughs> I'm trying to say that all day. <laughs> it looks like Reims, but it's France, <laughs> France. <laughs> and Paris. The Burgundies mm -hmm. and the Armagnacs were forced to make a tentative truce with one another. One another. France was essentially divided up by three factions, the Burgundies had the northern and eastern portions of France. The English held the middle northern portions of France, including Paris, along with Gascony in the far south. And then the Armagnacs, along with the Dauphin of France, <laughs> controlled the rest of central and southern France. Yes, we have maps. We have maps. <laughs> oh, look at that. I'm showing Kat right now so she can see. I'm looking at a map that will be on Facebook. Yes, it will be included. Get to see our show. Yes, I got more maps. She's got the maps. She's got lots of the maps. maps today. <laughs> Don't hand me the maps. <laughs> in 1419, the formidable John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, met with the Dauphin Charles and his Armagnac for forces for a parley on the bridge at Montereau, where John the Fearless was murdered with an axe blow to the head as he kneeled before the Dauphin. Oh my God! <laughs> so this event Who killed him. <laughs> was it a setup? Charles, yes, Charles's men, and That's he let rude. this happen. Well, he was literally kneeling before him to bow. I mean, he apparently pissed him off. He did. I mean, happen. again, these were rival factions. I haven't gone into all the details that led up to this, but 
This event marks the Dauphin for a duplicitous murderer, prompting the Burgundian faction to reach out to the English as there was no way they could recognize the Dauphin as the next king of France now. Well, yeah, I'm not going to trust someone who literally was like, bow before me and then... So when I was reading about it, um, the Duke of Burgundy was incredibly suspicious. So anytime he met with either English forces or Charles's forces, this will be the future Charles VII, they always met out in the open in a river because it was safe Did you just say in like in a river yeah like or like a, by a river no like literally they would go into a portion of the river that wasn't gonna sweep them away we are always meeting in rivers now <laughs> <laughs> and when this meeting occurred charles had told him you know bring all your men we will meet indoors which was inside the tower yeah and it was basically a trap you do not go anywhere near the tower of london because that always feels bad and (laughs) someone's gonna die of london shit (laughs) don't go to a tower (laughs) no towers can you can you have like a scene in your book where they meet in a river always sure thanks i'm so excited now so in 1420 queen isabeau of bavaria signed the treaty of troyes officially recognizing henry v of England as her husband's successor, along with Henry V's heirs, and disinheriting her son in the process. So at this point, Isabeau and her husband, Charles VI, the Mad King, Mm -hmm. they're essentially under Burgundian control and in English hands. Okay. So in order to cement this treaty, what happens? Oh, no, they're going to marry the youngest person in the household. <laughs> I don't think she was the youngest, but it's at this point she's that... She's under 10. I, I, don't, I think don't think she's care. under 10. <laughs> she's not because she has a kid oh. right after. So Henry V... That doesn't mean anything. She's older than 12. <laughs> so Henry V agrees to marry Isabeau and Charles's daughter, Catherine of Valois. Catherine of Valois goes on to be Henry VII's grandmother. Oh. Yes. Okay. So the so after um, Henry V dies, mm-hmm. she I believe she falls in love with and marries Owen Tudor, and then the Tudor line is born through Catherine of Valois. Yeah. So Henry V would never live to see himself crowned in France, though. Oh, the thing I forgot to mention wow. was um, in joining the two kingdoms. This assured that the children between Catherine and Henry would inherit both crowns because she is the crown princess and he's the king of. England. So England and France is now under one crown? Would be, yes. Okay. According to them. I mean, you have to get France to accept that and that's the poor, issue. <laughs> poor France is like... It's going to get worse. I can't worse. even say they're the redheaded stepchildren because like, you usually leave the redheaded stepchildren alone. Like They're off on their own thing. Like They just... Oh. Well, France was <laughs> dominating before this period too. Yeah. So, I mean, history, there's ebbs and flows in power. Well, yeah, but... But this is... this England is, is like, France with a... This is ex. literally probably the biggest low point in the history of France because, yeah. again, yeah. an English king is in Paris at this point yeah. and has occupied it. Ouch. So Henry V would never live to see himself crowned in France, though. He dies two years later due to... D- uh, dysentery. Yes. I was like, no, I know the word! <laughs> He dies to dysentery. He is only 35 years old. I love when I panic every time you look at me. I'm just like, oh God. How old is he? 35? He's 35. So he had all of these major, major battle victories and accomplishments by the age of 35. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had lived? Yeah. Like, that's insane. France would probably be. could have also just stalemated as well. I'm sure France would have probably still be under English control to this day. France would no longer be France. It would be something, some English name. (laughs) 
So this in turn left his infant son, Henry VI, the de facto king of both England and France. And by this point, France has been utterly devastated by both English invasion and civil war. And given how deeply entrenched Christianity is during the medieval era, with France being considered the most Christian of countries at this point, many people within France saw this turmoil as being a physical manifestation of God's displeasure. And so this is the context for which a teenage girl by the name of Jean, Jean. Joan emerges, <laughs> claiming to have visions from angels and promising France's deliverance. And this is what an anonymous citizen of Paris had to say about this time period. At that time, the English would sometimes take one fortress from the Arbignacs in the morning and lose two in the evening. So this war, accursed of God, went on. Wow. So by the time Joan of Arc emerges, this is France as we have come to know it. The so-called Hundred Years' War is 80 years in, and we're in a specific part of the war that has the French entrenched in civil warfare nonstop. The English king is a child. His uncles are his regent, and the Duke of Bedford is in charge of English France. The leader of the Armagnacs is the Dauphin, Charles, self-styled as the king, but as of yet uncrowned because the Cathedral of Reims, where all the French monarchs are traditionally anointed and crowned, is under English rule. The Duke of Bedford is a formidable soldier, but more cautious than his brother Henry V had been, and the French people are tired and exhausted. Their country is in a constant state of war. They don't even know who the right king is, and I'd imagine they don't care. No. <laughs> They've essentially been engaged in a civil war for decades. And That's so, so amazing that they're so entrenched in tradition that you leave your country kingless because the place that you usually crown your king yes. is occupied. Yeah. Like, that's how entrenched you are. Well, there's kind of, it's essentially two kings right now. Like it's a child king from England, but you have the Duke of Bedford who is the regent and physically in France. Yeah. And then you got Charles to the south. So who is Joan of Arc? Joan of Arc was born in the French village of Dromemi. I don't think I said that right. What did you call me? <laughs> Dro Dromemi. <laughs> to Jacques and to Isabel. Listen, we don't speak French. I'm trying. We, I'm, we're sorry. <laughs> she was the daughter of a small-time landowner and farmer, and her family owned approximately 50 acres of land. In addition to farming, her father also served as a tax collector within the village and on the council in town. We don't have a precise birthday for Joan, but historians put it sometime during the year 1412. The town remained loyal to the royalist French faction, which the Armagnacs, mm -hmm. um, but they are completely surrounded by Burgundian-controlled lands. Their village was raided several times and even burned at one point. The Burgundians are the faction allied with England right now. So the burned, is that the scene we saw with the wolves and then the wolves turned into the English and then her... Yeah, her that didn't happen. I mean, the town burned down. The town burned, but her her sister was not murdered. Yeah. Oh, I'm just saying. I remember. I just simply remember the wolves. She was in the forest. Oh yeah. And they made it look like a dream or a vision because yes. she just had the visions. Yeah. And she saw that. A that lot crone. of the the beginning of the messenger movie is completely just dramatized. Yeah. So yeah, none of her family was I just love that they felt the need to dramatize something. I mean, it was already pretty dramatic. I know. That's why I was like, that was unnecessary. And the way they dramatized it was also... Yeah, I kept like... She kept remembering it. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't a thing. So unlike her previous difficult damsels, Joan did not have the benefit of wealth to give her an education, and she was pretty much illiterate. 
She herself was said to have lived an uneventful and simple life. She helped her mother around the house while her father farmed, and she liked to play with her friends in the fields. I love how we say uneventful and simple, like it's a bad thing. I'm like, yes, I knew. This part you'll like. So there was supposedly a fairy tree in the nearby village, and it was said that she used to leave garlands for the fairies on the trees. I want to leave garlands for fairies. Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what most people know about Joan of Arc is that she had visions from, from heaven, allegedly. Joan claimed to have received her first spiritual visions at the age of 13 in her father's garden. In order for us to fully understand Joan, we need to try and divorce ourselves from the conceptualization of spirituality and mental health that we currently possess in the modern age. While we ourselves may question the legitimacy of the idea that Joan of Arc actually received visions from angels, or if these visions were instead a manifestation of some kind of psychosis, It's important to understand that the people of the time were not questioning the legitimacy of her visions. Christianity was deeply entrenched in people, in the people of the medieval era, with every manner of superstition you can imagine being considered completely and utterly reasonable. Prophets and saints claimed to have visions all the time. This was readily acceptable. The question that would later come up during Joan's trial was whether these visions came from heaven or hell. Joan herself said the visions came from God, from angels, and later from saints. And chief amongst her visitors were St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret. And to Joan, they entrusted the sacred duty of driving out the English from French lands and helping the Dauphin, the future Charles VII, to claim his rightful throne. They, they didn't know, they had no conception of what, of what mental illness was. That yeah. wasn't, mental illness existed but the term the understanding well mental illness during this time period people just assumed it was demons they didn't know what it was and that's so uh you you just got to think about how entrenched this 13 year old is in the church and in the faith yes that a 13 year old was like i'm getting visions from god like are you kidding me at 13 if i I got visions i'd be like whatever (laughs) i do want to specify like we don't know that this was a mental illness yeah like it's it's a possibility but we, we don't know there's really no way to. And know. I mean, even if it's a mental illness, she still, yeah. she still believed it was from God. Yes. <laughs> oh, and then I just wanted to point out really quick that um, the Dauphin in France was the name given to the heir apparent to the throne. It is a title that is unique to France. So just think of him as being the prince with an actual title. Um, and he maintained it even after being disinherited. I love the emphasis you put on Dauphin. Dauphin. <laughs> you literally stop and go, Dauphin. <laughs> At the age of 16, Joan traveled to the town of Bocoulet and petitioned the garrison commander, Robert de Baudricourt, to provide an armed escort to take her to the French court in Chinon. I, like, wrote Chinon. out how to say each of those names, like, in my notes. You guys, I don't think you Chinon. understand how much Rachel stresses about getting these names right. I'm trying. You're lucky that Rachel is saying this, because if it, if it were me, I'd be like, that place and this place, and correct me later, and I won't care. She was initially turned away and met with snide remarks, but Joan was anything if not resilient and famously said, I must be at the king's side. There will be no help if not for me, although I would rather have remained spinning at my mother's side. Spinning wool. Oh, I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yet must I go and must I do this thing, for my lord wills that I do so. She's very persistent. It was only after she predicted the end result to the Battle of Rovere, Several days before messengers delivered the official outcome that Robert de Baudricourt believed her and granted her the escort she had requested to take her to Chinon. Chinon. 
So um, I'm going to take a brief moment to just give you a breakdown of some of the characters in our story. Charles, the Dauphin of France, as previously stated, was the last surviving son of Charles VI, the Mad King, and Queen Isabeau of Bavaria. As he was the third son, he was never intended to be king, but his brothers both died in battle, making him the heir to the throne. Charles has set his court up in Chinon, in central France and the northern portion of the Armagnac territory. He has been called he has been calling himself the King of France, but has yet to be crowned, and with both Paris and Reims under English control. He is surrounded by counselors that all give him conflicting advice, and no clear path to Paris or his crown is clear, clearly in sight. His court is kind of in a desperate state at this point. Yeah. So the next person is Yolanda of Aragon, the Duchess of Anjou. She was the one with the, the double henning. Yeah. yeah, from the movie. <laughs> she is Charles's mother-in-law through his wife, Marie of Anjou. With Charles's mother, Isabeau of Bavaria, actively working against Charles and in English hands, Yolanda has become a sort of surrogate mother to Charles. Wait, did you say his mother's working against him? Yeah, Isabeau. Remember, she disinherited her own son and named... Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. I would say at this point, her her future and plans are, are firmly put into Catherine of Valois at this point, her gotcha. daughter. Okay. Um, But again, she's also in English hands. There's really not much she can do anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so Yolanda was basically his surrogate mother. She's also, again, another Queen of Thorns type. Um, like Elena Terrell from Game of Thrones. She is no queen herself, but she is wealthy and clever, working to secure matches for all her children. Some of, I think one of her sons had claims to the Sicilian throne. Oh. So she worked, she worked on that. She worked with Charles. Like she literally had her She's hands. She's a kingmaker. <laughs> she is. She's. Um, I'm going to need you to refer to me as the Queen of Thrones from now because okay. that's perfect. <laughs> Will do. Did I say Queen of Thrones or Thorns? You said thrones. You can be the queen of thrones. That's fine. No, no, no. I want to be the queen of thorns. God you can damn be the queen it. Of thorns I want too. to be both. I will be the queen maker. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, and more importantly to our story, Yolanda is a spiritualist. She was no stranger to the concept of women having visions from God, and she was very curious about Joan. We have John II, Duke of Alençon. The Duke of Alençon was one of John's most fervent supporters. His father had died at the Battle of Agincourt, and their duchy was confiscated by the English crown. He would not regain his duchy until after Joan's death, but he was still considered the duke in the eyes of the French crown. When Joan requested an army to go with her to lift the siege of Orléans, the Duke of Alençon offered his services and became the official commander of the Armagnac army. He and Joan grew to become best best friends they were besties they were besties guys <laughs> they they became good friends and she had named him le beau duc aka the fair or gentle duke and when joan was later martyred he was one of the people most devastated by her death is he the one played by hot dude no Can that was her bodyguard oh. and he was actually captured with her the bodyguard yes oh that would have been so much better i know they could have been together that sounds terrible the whole time like it was so it was so against Joan of Arc and who she was, but I kept thinking to myself, like, just kiss already. <laughs> yeah, mostly because Rachel wanted to kiss him. Yes, that's <laughs> true. She it was, was projectiling her. Projectiling? Was the actor, <laughs> Jesus, Mary and Joseph projecting her needs or her desires her desire. onto. It was Desmond Jean. something. Don't ask me to remember his name. I looked him up for you. That's all I do. <laughs> um, and our our oh. final character is Jean Gerson. 
He was the primary theological expert in France and the chancellor of the University of Paris. He was very involved in the Council of Constance and had worked to reconcile the great schism that had existed within the church. Um, again, this was a split where you had two popes. One was in Avignon, France. He often spoke out about the infighting that had been occurring within France, and he was also one of the first thinkers to write about ideas that would later influence the natural rights theory, which states that natural rights are those that are not dependent on the laws or customs of any particular culture or government. And for us, Jean Gerson was one of the first theologians to defend Joan of Arc and authenticate her supernatural visions. Oh, wow. A lot of J's in this story. So many. So, I mean, <laughs> you got away from the three Matildas, but she also came at me real hard with the J's. I know. I'm sorry. And it, <laughs> I, I already named our characters. This is pretty much it. <laughs> I love how you've named them. What yes. are you, God? No, I'm just... <laughs> Maybe I don't know. We're all, we all have the divine within us. Oh wow, that <laughs> wow, that was very preachy. <laughs> Sorry, cut that. I was, no, no, that's staying forever. <laughs> that's actually a thing in the Bible that a lot of like churches conveniently forget about. Is well, it yeah, does of course talk the about... churches are going to conveniently forget about the fact that you don't need them to go through to go to get to God. <laughs> <sighs> yes <laughs> i just always found it interesting because that's more linked to like paganism yeah but well, like it's there in the bible girl, too. the churches are uh, yeah yeah we'll talk about that later <laughs> <laughs> could talk about that for hours and not be done <laughs> so it's possible that joan had help in convincing robert de Baudricourt of her claims word was spreading of joan's visions which is no surprise as she was adamant in claiming they are what drove her quest the Duchy of Lorraine and the Duchy of Bar were roughly 10 miles south of Joan's village. The Duke of Lorraine had been curious enough of her tale to hear her out, and René of Anjou, the heir to the Duchy of Bar, was Yolanda of Aragon's son. So historians suspect that the moment Yolanda heard of this young girl with visions from God, she immediately jumped on it. Well, yeah, that's hope for a, a devastated and just yeah torn apart court Thank kingdom like country court, yes <laughs> so when joan and her escort set out on the road for the armagnac court in chinon she was given men's clothes to travel in and her hair was cropped short and covered with a black woolen hat to disguise the fact that she was a girl and so the group traveled 270 miles across france through enemy territory ruled by the burgundian faction until they arrived at the dauphin's court so did they did they do that disguise to hide the fact that she was the girl with the visions because um, she, her her no they did it because she, a she was traveling amongst men so yeah. they did it to protect her and then again they did it to protect her from brigands on the road because so the men she was traveling with know that she was yes. a woman okay so they were gotcha. aware but it was still again you have to take the temptation away from men oh. yeah <laughs> yeah was, i love how you have to take the temptation away from men Ugh. it was mostly <laughs> it was mostly for her protection gotcha okay so imagine what a sight she must have made. An illiterate and simple peasant girl, not yet out of her teens, hair cropped like a boy and dressed in clothes that no respectable woman of the time would wear, appearing before the uncrowned king of France and promising to deliver him his besieged kingdom, drive the English out of France, and crown him at Reims, if only he would give her an army. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be hard to be like, yeah, <laughs> sure. So one of the most famous tales about jo Joan's initial visit to the court was that she had been requested by the nobles to pick Charles out in the crowd. The oh, so that was really a thing? I 
I found it in one source. It's not talked about in the others. Okay. I think this is kind of similar to the tale of Elizabeth Bathory bathing in blood coming about gotcha. years after the fact. Yeah. It's possible it happened though. Yeah. But it is one of the like prevailing myths that came out of yeah. her first initial meeting at that's, that court. That's an interesting scene in the movie for sure. <laughs> yeah. So basically the idea was that if she was divinely motivated, the hand of God would move her to pick the correct man out of the crowd. And indeed, according to the myth she did this is, this is why i would so just if someone was like test we're gonna test her I'd be like fuck your test and leave <laughs> and then france would be in english hands forever yeah that's fine <laughs> i tried i came i saw men got in the way i left <laughs> the court was cautious and jones claims that she received visions from heaven were challenged even then prophetic visions could come from either God or the devil. And women, it was said, were especially susceptible to demonic influence. Uh, of course they were. <laughs> Joan, Jean Gerson had said that women were often overeager, changeable, unbridled, and therefore not to be trusted. And here was Joan, a teenage girl dressed in men's clothes. And lest we not forget that in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Bible, a woman dressed in men's clothes was an abomination unto the Lord. So she's literally like a appearing in men's clothes. Yeah. I, we're in pants right now. So yes, we are, are committing a sin. Just so you know. <laughs> we're in pants <laughs> that you people know. <laughs> yeah. Like she literally is walking in and advertising like, hey, sin. Because men told her to. I love all the descriptions too of, of women are literally what men tell women to be. Yeah. You're like, we're untrustworthy because we're doing what you do. Oh. Again, I would instantly be burned at the stake. I wouldn't even get a trial. They'd just I be like, somebody burn her. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in order to prove the nature of Joan's visions, they submitted her to a number of tests. The first involved two women of the court validating Joan's virginity was still intact. And so Joan was named Pusel, meaning the maid. Once her physical integrity was verified, the court had to find a way to validate her spiritual integrity. And so they reached out to Jean Gerson. How do you validate so... Okay. Their spirituality? Yeah. Well. I'm afraid to hear this. <laughs> so Jean Gerson had famously written the Discretio Spiritum, which had been used to help determine whether a prophet's visions were from heaven or hell. It basically just provides a checklist to use. Theologians. <laughs> God bless you. I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> Let's try this again. Theologians. Theologians. Let's try this again. No, no, I'm keeping that in. <laughs> Fine. Theologians. It's whenever they're called on to examine a case where spiritual visions are claimed, they use this checklist yeah. to determine if it's um, heavenly, divine, or from hell. What makes that fool the the voice of? Remember, I mentioned he's the chief theologian. I don't give a shit. What he is? What is? Why is he the the end all be all of what is holy and not? <laughs> Um, cause he studied it and he was the chancellor of Paris. I don't know. Shut up. Because he's a dude and he had power and he wrote a <laughs> yes. book. He wrote, he wrote many books. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to be the, the power on a stupid topic. That so, makes no sense. Gerson declared that Joan's spiritual integrity would have to be investigated by all the great Armagnac theologians and scholars. And so 40 miles south to Portier, where the French theologians could observe and test Joan both by questioning her about her life and behavior and motives, and also through the power of prayer. Is it Portier or Portier? I think it's Portier. 
anyway i'm went... sorry i don't mean to like no correct you're, you. you're fine <laughs> how dare you i'm sorry it's portier so joan proved stalwart proclaiming again and again that her only desire was to rid france of the english and lead charles to Reims, so that he could be anointed and crowned as king of france her resolve moved the church the theologians <laughs> They could find no evil in her, instead finding her to be a godly woman of virtue, humility, and integrity. But they still wanted a sign, and they wanted that sign to be from God. What? Hypocrites. You, what makes you think you can demand a sign from fucking God? (laughs) Well, as it so happened, Joan had a solution to that question. My solution would be like, fuck off, you don't deserve a sign. Carry on. (laughs) You wouldn't be Joan of Arc then. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So her suggestion was that in order to get to Reims to crown the Dauphin, they would first have to get past Orléans. And Orléans was famously under the control of the English. They'd been sieging the town for six months. Mm -hmm. So her, her answer was simple. She would take Orléans herself. If, if she took it, that was God's sign that she was his hand on the earth. And if she failed, then I mean, that's a good, she didn't that's a have good God's bet. favor. That's a good bet to take. Cause you got a 50, 50 chance. You either win or you lose. <laughs> exactly. So the court agreed that it was perfect. It was a perfect opportunity to prove God's will. If Joan was able to lead an army to victory at Orleans, a peasant girl of no more than 17 years, she was no doubt a herald from God to deliver France's liberation. If she failed, God still would have spoken by denouncing her. And so she was granted her army, and to prove the fervor of her mission, she dictated a letter to the English. King of England, and you, Duke of Bedford, who call yourself regent of the Kingdom of France, you, William de la Pole, Count of Suffolk, John, Lord of Talbot, and you, Thomas, Lord of the Scales, who call yourselves lieutenants of the said Duke of Bedford, submit yourselves to the King of Heaven, restore to the maid who was sent here by God, the King of Heaven, the keys of all the fine towns that you have taken and violated in France. Joan assured them in her letter that if the English left France and paid for all they had taken, she would grant them peace. If they refused, she promised the following. I am the military leader, and wherever I find your men in France, I will make them leave, whether they want to or not, and if they will not obey, I will have them all killed. I am sent here by God, the King of Heaven, to face you head head to head and drive you out of the whole of France. And if they will obey, I will show them mercy. That is very aggressive. <laughs> God, it's also badass. It's like 17 yeah. year old peasant girl yeah. is like, I am here on God's will, get out of France. <laughs> yeah. But also the hypocrisy of Well yeah. We're leading an army. I'm leading an army because God told me to lead an army and I will kill I will make sure all of you die if you don't leave. Yeah, but she did often tell them, like, we will show you mercy. She often gave people yeah. the opportunity not to fight. Yeah, but just that that line really yes, grinds my I gears. I know, because everybody uses it. Yeah. Everyone's always fighting yeah. for God on every side of yeah. every war. <laughs> Joan's gear was all donated, donated to her, including the armor she wore, which Charles the Dauphin had commissioned his own armors to make her armor. Oh. Yeah. Her horse was donated, and so was her banner. And the sword she would carry with her into battle was fetched from the church of St. Catherine, from its hiding place upon Joan's instruction, astonishing those who found it as it came right out of some sort of Arthurian tale. So she was apparently like, go to this church, 
check this coffer. If you open it, you'll find my sword. Oh, damn. Yeah. Why didn't they do that in the movie? The sword just, like, appeared to her in the field. In a field. field. I don't know. This is a way better story. I mean, it, it <laughs> makes sense in the end with that we- the weird the weird shit that happened in the end. He was explaining, like, the sword could have just come from anywhere, but... Well, same thing with St. Catherine. Apparently, a lot of soldiers stopped there during the war and just mm-hmm. would give up their arms. Oh. So... So it could have just been anyone's sword. Could have. Yeah. And they could have done that in the movie. And I don't know why they didn't. But yeah. So the Armagnac army led by Joan had one major advantage going for them before they even arrived in Orléans. Philip of Burgundy had withdrawn Burgundian troops from the city mere weeks before Joan's arrival due to a dispute over how revenues would be spent from the town if the English garrison delivered it to Burgundian control. So if I was Joan, I'd be like, there's your fucking sign. Half the people are gone. You're welcome. Go fight this battle now. <laughs> Pretty much. So they're at this point, they're only fighting. They only have to worry about the English. Okay. And while on the road to Orleans, Joan is said to have also prohibited any form of murder, rape, or pillaging within her soldiers. Again, it said so long as the people they came across were willing to submit to her cause. But yeah. she, she enforced this... Um, very unique form of discipline on them. Force them to be decent humans, yes. even though they're <laughs> murdering. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, war does... It brings out terrible war things War makes monsters of us all. <laughs> yeah. On April 29th, 1429, the Armagnac army came upon the besieged city of Orléans with Joan at the head of the army and priests walking before them to herald their coming. By now, the English had received her letter and already took her for a blasphemous upstart and a witch. <laughs> But the English garrison was thin, and despite the insults the English spat down at Joan, she slipped through the English blockade in the middle of the night along with provisions for the town that had been under siege for six months. Whether or not Joan engaged in any fighting herself has been the subject of debate for historians. She herself claimed that she never killed anyone, and her presence was more of a morale boost than anything else. Either way, the citizens of Orléans and the the town's commander known as the Bastard of Orléans, welcomed her with cheers and adulation. But Joan quickly learned that, despite the fact that her presence was sanctioned by the King of France, there were practical obstacles in her way, preventing her from acting on what she truly believed was her mission from God. Joan was barred from most military councils, and her soldiers at one point had been sent back to the city of Blois. Blois, there it is again. (laughs) Can't escape it. Please, it's not Stephen. (laughs) Outraged, Joan demanded of the bastard of Orléans that he retrieve them at once so that she might take her fight directly to the English and repel them from Orléans once and for all. While the bastard of Orléans slipped out of the city to retrieve her soldiers, Joan rode around the city to familiarize herself with English fortifications and defenses. Citizens of the town continued to shower her with gifts, but she was singularly minded at at this point, wishing only to drive the English from the city. The bastard of Orléans returned a few days later with Joan's soldiers and priests and the intent to take the English head-on so that they might make for the Bastille of Saint-Loup, a fortification on the eastern side of the city where the English were holed up. During the siege, Joan was famous for never having wielded a weapon herself, preferring instead to wield her standard. It was white for the cover or the color of uh, purity. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that could be used as a weapon too. Those things are not exactly. That's true. (laughs) It was said that Joan preferred the standard to the sword, lest she kill anyone with the sword. And indeed, at her trial, she claimed to have never killed a man in battle. 
She would instead charge in with a battle cry, her mere presence being a source of inspiration for the men on the field. The same could not be said of the opposing forces. Frustrated that the English still had not left the city, Joan had another letter written, and in it she said, You men of England, who have no right in the kingdom of France, the king of heaven orders and commands you through me, Joan the maid, to abandon your strongholds and go back to your own country. If not, I will make a war cry that will be remembered forever. I am writing this to you for the third and last time. I will write no more. The letter was then tied to an arrow and an archer shot it into the opposing camp. And as one might expect, the English response was one of derision and mockery. The English called Joan the Armagnac Whore and other choice names. Wow. Yeah. That's generally the word, I guess, thrown around when you just don't like someone. Pretty much. Oh, oh, sorry. Especially when if they're a woman. you just don't like a woman. Yeah. <laughs> On May 6, 1429, mere days after the initial siege of Orléans began, Joan's army routed out the remainder of the English army and pushed them across the river outside of Orléans, where they regrouped at Les Tourelles to make a last stand behind fortifications. It was important that the French push the English back from the Tourelles. Tourelles? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's, it's one of the last major fortifications near the city. Okay. Um, if the English kept it, they were still within striking range of Orléans at any point. It's outside of the Tourelles that Joan was hit with an arrow between her neck and shoulder. The bastard of Orléans wanted to retreat at this point, but Joan was relentless and urged the soldiers to keep fighting. And despite her wound from the arrow, she she too pushed on. Um, it was nothing like the dramatic It was so scene. dramatic in the movie. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I love Mila Jovovich, but sometimes her acting is a little yeah, bit Yeah, so apparently it was mostly just a flesh wound. They like... They took her to scratch. Pretty much. They took her to like where the ditches were made, I think, to patch her up, and then she was like back on her horse riding yeah. out and saying, like, attack them. You mean it wasn't like in the movie where she looked like she was bleeding out? And gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that. The army still an arrow to the arm. We, yes, we are not yes. taking anything away from the fact that the bitch got shot in it the was, arm. It was just nowhere compared to And you to could what die from that. Made it out to be. Isn't that how Richard died? It is. Yeah. So she's stronger than Richard. Oh, sorry, Richard. <laughs> so Armagnac forces ended up climbing up and over the walls, emboldened by Joan's presence, and even villagers from Orleans came out of the town with planks of wood to aid the soldiers in climbing the walls. This is essentially when the English broke from the utter chaos and confusion. The commander of the English army, Sir William Glasdale, himself fell from the walls into the river in full plate, full plate mail and sunk in the river. Oh. <laughs> it's not funny, but like... It's horrible, but also... It's kind of funny. I don't even think that didn't make it to the movie, right? No, someone that. jumped off something. The rest of the English army fled while Joan and the rest of the Armagnac army reemerged in Orléans to the sound of church bells heralding their victory and people singing in the street. Joan had fulfilled her promise. It was a sign from God the Armagnac forces had asked for. It. Joan was victorious and Orléans was back in Armagnac hands. Yeah. After the success of Orléans, Joan was heralded by Armagnac forces as divinely ordained. She had promised that her success at Orléans would be the sign that she was God's champion, and she delivered. Prominent clergymen in France began to flock to her cause, including Archbishop of Embrun, 
and, of course, Jean Gerson, both of whom publicly proclaimed their support for her in writing. Jean Gerson had written a treaty, a treatise about Joan called About the Maid of Orleans, again going through the, his checklist from his discretio spiritum and ultimately uttered the verdict that her visions had been divinely inspired. He observed that she had inspired faith in the people of France and the king, understood the risks of her actions, and pursued faithfully all the same. He even excused the fact that she wore men's clothing, claiming she did so because her circumstances required it of her, being that she was a warrior surrounded by men. I'm going to excuse you for the sin of wearing pets. <laughs> her deeds were inspired by God, and thus Joan had the chief French theologian. He, she got his stamp of approval. She got the guy's stamp of approval. <laughs> oh. To the English, however, her success at Orléans was proof of witchcraft. Of course. There was no way a peasant girl could defeat their army, and naturally she had to be possessed by the devil. Oh, the pride of men. <laughs> <laughs> Following the battle at Orléans, Joan persuaded Charles VII that it was now time to crown him at Reims. This was a difficult task, as Reims was still under enemy control and twice as far away as Paris. But it was necessary to legitimize Charles VII's rule, as it was only in the Cathedral of Reims that the French king could be anointed with the holy oils and crowned. Following the victory at Orléans, Joan had gained a number of prominent supporters. The Duke of Alençon led the Armagnac army, and the Bastard of Orléans, impressed with what Joan had achieved in Orléans, had joined her cause. It turns out Joan's relentless conviction was contagious. She managed to, managed to also charm the young nobleman by the name of Guy de Laval, who visited with her. She at one point ordered wine be brought to them and promised him that the next time she poured him a cup, it would be in Paris. Guy de Laval was so impressed that he wrote to his mother, It seemed to me a gift from heaven that she was there and that I was seeing her and hearing her. On the march towards Reims, the Armagnac army set out to free the Loire Valley of English control. Um, so these are basically the keeps along the Loire River, which mm -hmm. are controlled by the English. Okay. They took the towns of Jarjou, Mung, and Burgency in quick succession from June 12th to June 17th in 1429. At Jarjou, Joan had sent out another one of her famous letters to the English, again bidding the English army to save their own lives and surrender and give up the town to, to God and King Charles VII. The English refused, of course, but the mockery experienced at the Siege of Orléans was curiously absent now. Yeah, because now they are scared. <laughs> yeah, they've been defeated by even, a even girl. If, yeah, <laughs> even if they don't believe in her, the legitimacy of Jean, they still got their asses kicked. Like, they'll refuse to believe that a woman was in charge when they did get their asses kicked, but they still got their asses kicked. Yes. <laughs> and they're going to keep and, getting and their asses they're, kicked. And they're afraid of the hope that she inspires. So Joan's advisors had cautioned that an assault on Jarjou would be daunting due to the fortifications and tried to push for retreat before English reinforcements could arrive. Sorry, I'm not giggling at the, the pronunciation. I'm giggling at the fact that it sounds like a Star Wars planet. I practiced it so many times. <laughs> yeah, Joan it had <laughs> been just as relentless at Jarjou as she had Orléans and pushed the men around her to attack. They had God on their side after all. Four relentless and exhausting hours later, Joan's forces scaled the walls and took the town, capturing the English Earl of Suffolk. 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 <laughs> that's, a, that's a powerful motivator 
feeling like you have God on your side. Like, yes. can you imagine how yeah. invincible you feel at that point? Um, interesting thing about the Earl of Suffolk, he apparently knighted the soldier that captured him beforehand. Um, <sighs> I think because like he he couldn't bear the thought of being captured by somebody who was not a knight. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Made me laugh. And then on June 18th, 1429, the Armagnac army delivered a, de- a decisive blow to the English forces that had been stationed at Pate. In what has traditionally been called the French version of the Battle of Argincourt, the English longbowmen were completely cut down by the French cavalry, with several of their commanders captured during the battle, including John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury. So brief, <laughs> brief little aside here on Talbot. Again, he was one of the main generals for the English. He was one of the most revered and notorious English commanders during the Hundred Years' War. He was called the English version of Achilles of Iliad fame and had been known as the terror of the French. All right. So you can think of him as one of the biggest boogeyman for the French and they had just captured him. I mean, Achilles also got, well, he didn't get captured. He just got killed. After freeing up the Loire Valley, King Charles VII finally made his march towards Reims, And along the way, he promised that any cities that wished to surrender would have their previous grievances forgiven. Most of them did. The one city that didn't was Troyes. The citizens like kept the gates locked. They eventually negotiated to have them surrender, but that's the same city where the treaty was signed to disinherit him. Oh, <laughs> wow. Kind of like, we really don't like you. They got hard feelings. <laughs> Armagnac forces reached Rons on July 16th, 1429. And on the following day, Charles VII was at last officially anointed and crowned. During the coronation ceremony, the Maid of Orleans stood at his side in her shining armor with her trusty white banner at her side. And after the ceremony, Joan knelt at his feet and began to weep, saying, Noble king, God's will is done. She's very dramatic. She is. <laughs> she knows how to play the crowd. She knows how to work the stage. <laughs> I think she just truly believed it. Like, I mean, yeah, this probably. was the thing that had been driving her. <laughs> yeah. Afterwards, Joan had urged Charles to march immediately on Paris, but the Armagnacs ended up dragging their feet, initially attempting to negotiate a treaty with Burgundian and English forces. This point, war is expensive. Mm hmm. So they, throughout this whole period, they're trying to come up with these treaties to end the war. They make a treaty, and then it gets unmade. Of course it does. <laughs> so predictably, the truce treaties between... Only last as long as the people who sign them, and even still. Yeah. <laughs> and even they undo them. So the truce between Armagnac France and England was short-lived. When Compagne came under siege by the English and Burgundian forces, Joan traveled to the city to help fend off the siege. On May 23rd, 1430, Joan led her forces outside of town to launch a surprise attack on the Burgundian camp north of Compagne. But she was seen by Burgundian scouts that ended up calling for reinforcements. Joan and her men were forced to retreat. When Joan and her men reached the city, the defenders inside had already closed the gates. Historians debate whether this was an act meant to prevent Burgundian forces from entering the city, or if it had been an act of betrayal by the men in charge of the town. Either way, Joan was captured, and this is what the Burgundian chronicler George Castellan had to say about it. Then the maid, surpassing the nature of a woman, took on a great force, and took much pain to save her company from defeat. 
remaining behind as the leader and as the bravest of the troop. But their fortune permitted for the end of her glory and for the last time she would ever carry arms, an archer, a rough and very sour man, full of much spite because of a woman who so much had been spoken about should have defeated so many brave men as she had done, grabbed the edge of her cloth of gold doublet and threw her from her horse flat to the ground. And with that, the Maid of Orleans campaign was officially over. She was now in Burgundian hands, and this, fair listeners, is where we must put the story of Joan of Arc on hold. In part two, we'll go over Joan of Arc's captivity, trial, and execution. I was going to try to fit this all into one episode, but a lot of Joan of Arc's badassery comes from her time in captivity and her trial, so I thought it fitting to devote a separate episode entirely to that. Yay! Yeah. So in the movie, I know that she had pleaded with Charles for more men. Yes. It, was that a was that a that um, was accurate? He okay. So at this point, he they, got what he wanted and doesn't care anymore. I don't think it was nearly as they make him seem very capricious yeah. in the movie. It's John Malkovich, right? Yeah. Right. That place. John in. Malkovich is just capricious. <laughs> yeah. I think it was more. There's a couple things going on. They were out of money. Yeah. Soldiers cost money. Yes. He also had infighting within his own court. He had certain people saying, That's don't go really to Paris. That's really funny that there's a civil war in France and yes. you also have infighting. Like, could we chill? <laughs> you, have, you have the people all vying for control. Yeah. At one of the previous battles, they were able to win it because they got yet another duke came in with mm-hmm. his men. But that duke had been exiled from Charles's court. This was years yeah. ago. Again, this is, again, a lot of the story that doesn't... I'm not telling because it's... That's a different story. It's not Jones. Yeah. But all this infighting. And he has... He has... I, I call it Reams, but Rons. Reams. <laughs> they don't necessarily need Paris at this point, And right now, they can't really afford to go against it. Like, she took her men to Paris. Um, she had asked Charles for men, and he did not provide it. And they, like, they couldn't take Paris, so they had to... Yeah. Had to flee with their tails between their yeah. legs. But, I mean, he he at that point, I'm not saying he got what he wanted, so therefore he's done. But I'm saying, like, he is now in his position, whereas she doesn't feel like she's accomplished what she yes. set out to do because she set out to save France. And all yes. she did so far is put the Dauphin on the, on the throne. On the throne. So but he's that's, officially, not, that's yeah. not the end of her quest. That was part one of her quest. Part yeah. two was to liberate France entirely. Yeah. yeah. So so she's got that almost like desperation, which Mila played off very well. She did. And she mm-hmm. very much, it wasn't enough that they had driven the English out of certain portions of France. Mm-hmm. She wanted to drive them out of the entirety. The world. The whole of France. <laughs> yeah. At this point, like by the time she's captured, she doesn't have the same number of men she did yeah. at the Battle of Orléans because... Men die in battle. <laughs> well, men die, but also, like, Charles just didn't give them to her. Yeah. Like like you were saying, he kind of got what he wanted. Yeah. It made more sense for him now to just kind of lay low. Yeah. Let let the infighting in his court kind of settle itself and, and hopefully, solve itself. And then by the end kept, of that. This whole time, they're also trying to make peace with the Burgundians. Because mm-hmm. if the Burgundians and the Armagnacs can work together... Together, they can drive out the English. Yeah. But again... Don't use your brains or anything, people. Just keep fighting. <laughs> yeah. There's a um, lot of... There's blood feuds between the two factions. Because again, 
the leader of the Burgundians had been that dude who was that dude <laughs> assassinated. Yeah. And his son who takes over. The ref- one who got an axe when he was yes. killing. Yes. Okay. I can understand his her son feelings for that. Ref- is the new Duke of Burgundy and he refuses yeah. to work with Charles. Yeah. I would have yeah. a problem working with the, the man Duke. who set my father yeah. up to die in such a horrible way. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what Joan's dealing with. All right. So I think the question we'll just consider now is, is she at least up to this point more difficult or more damsel? Oh, I think she is 100% difficult. She's 100%. Yeah. yeah there's no damsel here. <laughs> she, I mean, she could have, she could have stayed sidelined. She could have brought her message and been the mouthpiece of God, but not necessarily the personification and, of yeah. God's will. She was very persistent, very confident in what she was doing. She strongly believed in it. And I think, I think that makes her 100% difficult. And yeah. the damsel would have sat next to the king off to the side away from the battle. On top of that, we were talking about, again, like, despite the fact that Charles wouldn't give her the men after yeah. Orleans, she continued to yeah, annoy him and yeah. nag him and be like, I need more men. I need more men. Like, yeah. we're not done here. Yeah. And I think, I honestly, like, we'll get into it more in part two, but I'm sure that was part of the reason why he didn't try so hard to get her back. Yeah. Because at this point, she's almost becoming more of a problem. He got, yeah, the problem was taken care of without him having to lift, well, assuming he didn't have anything to do with it without him having to lift a finger. Yeah. So, I mean, if your problem gets taken away, you're not going to. But the issue is so many men, so many men at this point, especially the men who had fought alongside her, Mm -hmm. believed in her. So that's the thing that comes back to bite him in the butt. Yeah. I mean, and that could have probably been perceived as a threat for him too because yeah. this woman who started off as just your, your this girl yeah sorry she's a teenager she's a baby she's a baby she's a baby um this girl who started off as just you know you're you're getting the men to what is that word i don't know radicalizing cheerleader i don't want to say that <laughs> um booster. your motivational you know image yeah. is turning into something more and you yeah. know you are the king so they should be following you but they're essentially following jean yeah well there's also practical limitations to what she's asking yeah war is not cheap yeah. you have to have money to continue yes. to wage it and i don't yeah. think she really she didn't we, we don't that. we don't know for sure but i'm sure like for her it was like you'll find a way like this is yeah god's this will. is find god's will god will figure it out yeah. for you yeah all right, so that's the, uh, we'll stop there for Joan. I have two random questions for us. First question is, what is your favorite thing to eat for breakfast that is not considered a breakfast food? Pizza. Cold really? pizza. Really? Yes. Ooh. Yes. I nice. had that this morning. No, Hell I actually yeah. had eggs and hash browns this morning. But... You know, I don't <laughs> think I've ever, I should try cold pizza for breakfast. That actually surprises me that you've never had cold pizza for breakfast. Some of the so... shit you text me that you had for breakfast, I'm like, what? <laughs> Cupcakes are breakfast food. Cupcakes? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, muffins are cupcakes, but less fancy. But with frosting. <laughs> well, cupcakes are muffins. <laughs> we, I feel like we've had this argument before where I'm very adamant that muffins and cupcakes are the exact fucking same thing. One's just a little more sugary than the other. Yeah. And what, and they have frosting. Yeah. <laughs> cupcakes have frosting. Yeah. So cupcakes are my favorite, like, okay. non-breakfasty breakfast food. It's, it's a pastry, so it counts. You're such a college student sometimes. Really? Sometimes the the Is things that a college student thing. 
it's just like a, a person who doesn't really have any sort of like planned out meals. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's like, a, that, to me, that's like the ideal, like that's what a college student is, is like they don't plan anything out. They well, just grab meals and whatever's I, in the fridge. It depends on my mood. I know. You're so weird. <laughs> I'm so organized in everything but that. You really are. Like, <laughs> you don't really plan out food. Well, you, no. you plan out dinners sometimes. Sometimes. I'll get <coughs> my general, like, I want to cook this, this, and this. I don't know if it's going to be this day or that day, but I'll have it. <laughs> I love when you text me and you're like, okay, I'm going to cook this probably this day. It might also be this day. I'm like, so what day am I coming over? <laughs> pizza is definitely, it has to be cold though. I've never heated up pizza in the microwave really yeah i don't like oh, heated up pizza that is something i didn't know about yet. yeah i hate heated up pizza i always eat it cold. chinese food too i don't reheat chinese food. you eat chinese food cold uh -huh. that's weird i know <laughs> that is an aberration <laughs> oh, okay man. so our second question is what are some of the most important qualities and attributes you look for in your friendships and relationships so I'm going to go with friendships because I don't have <laughs> relationships don't exist in my life okay. <laughs> other than friendships. So one of my big things, and we've talked about this when we first started this podcast is authenticity. Yes. Um, you, you, you can't lie to yourself. You can't lie to me. That's another one of the things. Honesty, you have to be honest and you have to, you just don't lie to me. I'd rather have the truth than yeah. be lied to. No matter how bad it is. Exactly. I told you I murdered a man. I'd help you. <laughs> I'm probably going to be right next to you if you ever do. <laughs> I don't know. What did I do? Cat. Um, I also need someone who's who's open-minded, which is why you and I get along so well. Because you and I, we're not necessarily on different, we're on different sides, but we're so close to the center that it... I'm not close to the center. <laughs> you were mostly close. To, we're close enough to center where... You're close enough to center. I'm close enough <laughs> I'm to center. I'm very left. Yeah, you are. Um, but... but but because we're both open-minded, yeah, it works. And I think that's a big thing. It's like, I cannot stand closed-minded people. And there are yes. some people really close to me who are closed-minded. And I only deal with them because I have to. <laughs> I am openly on the left, but I also do my best to try and understand opposing views viewpoints because there's no way you're ever going to change somebody's mind if you already write them off as being wrong yeah because they came to their conclusion based on their own experience and you the way also the way you come to your conclusions you don't just say oh this because right. that you do your research and i try yeah you make informed decisions <laughs> and i won't i won't decide on something if i don't know yeah the facts behind yeah. it i remember when we were walking um on our break, one of our breaks, we were walking around the plaza mm -hmm. and some guy had a, um, you know, those people who ask you to sign shit, but don't tell you what it is. Yes. And some guy, oh, I'll remember it to the day I die. Some guy looked at Rachel as we were passing. He says, Hey, you want to sign this? And she stops and goes, what is it? I'm like, I'm not just going to sign something. You just push my, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to keep, I literally kept walking. I was like, that's how I do with people like that. I just keep walking. I'm yeah. like, I don't care about your shit. Really he wouldn't don't. even tell me. He was like, he probably just go didn't look it know. Up. He probably was getting paid to have He was like, sign. go look it up. And I was like, no. I you sign your shit before I yeah. look shit up. Yeah. It's like, you're, you're trying to get me to sign something. Explain it to me. Yeah. And he didn't. And I didn't no. sign it. <laughs> But another thing, I will say this is for relationships and friendships. You have to be motivated. Yes. I don't care what you're motivated in. I agree. But you can't be stagnant. I can't stand stagnation. So for someone to not, 
at least self-improvement. I mean, you have to be motivated to be a better person always. You're never at the end of your line until... This is why we're friends. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. And then also the biggest one in relationships and friendships is you have to make me laugh. Yes. I have enough shit going on in my life that I need people who can make me laugh. No and you make what. other people laugh too. So it's that's, not just yeah. a... That's one yeah. of my biggest things is I enjoy making people laugh. It's yeah. one of the highlights of my day if I can make at least one person laugh. You make me laugh all the fucking time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of mine are the same as yours. Because um, we are soulmates. Yes. <laughs> same hat. <laughs> yeah. So for me, reciprocity mm-hmm. is very important. Um, I'm the type of person who I will put in mm. 80% and you'll put in 20%. I'll do that mm-hmm. up to a certain point. But after a while, if I'm not if that curiosity is not coming back at me, if you are not putting in the same effort as me, I will eventually get to a point where I am done. Yeah. And that's relationships and friendships as well. I won't do any one-sided friendships. And I appreciate your willingness to give 80 to a certain point, because I know that there are some times when you give more than I give, because there are times when I do not want a human. I do do not want to deal with people and you respect that, but you also know that, I'll reciprocate later on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing with you is I, I understand it's kind of, you talked about authenticity and for me, it's just, um, it's more, how do I explain this? Just, just tell me what the deal is. Communication. Yeah, communication you, is key. Yes. You can be the biggest hot mess in the world. Yeah. As long as you tell me when I do X, I need you to do Y. Yeah. Perfect. I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand it. You used to tell me you can be very flaky at times and it's, it's because of your anxiety and other Mm -hmm. things going on because you told me that and you told me like what you expect me to do in those situations. Yeah. I was able to adjust accordingly. And now there's never any confusion of like, oh, is she mad at me or does she not want to talk to me or hang out? It's like, no, she literally has. Yeah. And I'll tell you straight up, like I'm I can't like I'm not (laughs) and I appreciate that yeah and that's that's the thing too is being honest with yourself and being able to convey that honesty motivation um that's a big thing for me as well just the desire to constantly improve yourself I would say as far as a relationship goes I have a very hard wall of if you are not doing something to better your physical health and also your mental health Mm -hmm. I won't engage because these are things that are, that are very important just to your well-being. And if you're not in a good space mentally or physically, you're not going to be in a relationship either. Yeah. And it's not my job to be your therapist. Yeah. You won't tolerate, tolerate wallowing. No. Yeah. I mean, I will, if you tell me, like I'm dealing with X and this is how I'm dealing with it. But if, if your way of dealing with it is just blame everyone else blame everyone else or just completely isolate for long periods of time. It's like, you can't expect anyone to stick around because that's emotionally taxing. You have to put in the work to show up. Personal responsibility. Yes. Accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think those are the big things. (laughs) Um, Communication, accountability, same thing. Like make me laugh. Yeah. Make me laugh. Make me curious. Teach me things. Yeah. I, I love ooh, learning. A re- one big relationship thing for me is you have to you have to have that that wonder, like mm-hmm. that childlike like you have to believe That's the in magic. Aries in you. Yeah, yeah, you still have to believe in magic because I fully believe magic exists. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean even if it's 
magic you create by yourself. I mean, it doesn't have to be like whimsical. I just made fire, but that's yeah. cool. <laughs> Open-mindedness. I, I could definitely date someone who didn't have the same spiritual beliefs as me. That makes for good conversation though. Exactly. All yeah. I need is an open mind. You could say, I don't believe that, but I'm curious to know what you believe. I love, that was one of the biggest things that like floored me when I first met you. Cause you always asked, like you always wanted to know, you know, I'm so used to just saying things and everyone agreeing with it because I always hung out with the same type of people yeah. who had the same line of thoughts. So they never questioned where I came from, why I came from, blah, blah, blah. But you would, were always asking why and we're all, you all, were always curious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you appreciate that. I do. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, God, Jesus. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Not in a bad way. It's just, it makes, it holds me accountable. And it things. literally doesn't even come from a place of holding you accountable. It's no, literally like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, explain. I, yeah. I want to understand. Yeah. yeah. What did we talk about off mic? We were talking about it earlier about like bringing, when you have, when in a relationship, when you, when your significant other has baggage. Oh, yes. Yeah. Don't hold it against. Yeah. Don't hold the mistakes, the people in your past made against any new people who come into your life yes you said something like bring your baggage but don't throw it bring your baggage but i'm not gonna hold it yes yeah yeah you can bring your baggage, bring your baggage here, but don't make me hold it yeah but it's yours don't make You're me responsible for it. your baggage don't leave it in the airport unattended <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people are guilty of that and yeah i've i've gotten to know some people recently who have acknowledged that they've done it in the past and they've mm -hmm. said I'm actively working to make sure yeah. I don't hold new people in my life accountable for the mistakes yeah. old people made. And we don't, I mean, this sounds like we're asking for perfection. I am. She's asking for I'm, perfection. I hold the standards. <laughs> listen, my friends, I hold to high standards. It's, it's not like you have to be perfect, but there are standards. You have to, you don't have to be perfect, but you have to be motivated mm -hmm. to be always try to be better mm -hmm. so you can you can bring that toxic baggage in and accidentally try to like I, suddenly i'm holding it but i'll give it right back to you and you have to take it back yes you have to be responsible you have to acknowledge to what you did yeah exactly yeah. exactly and and <laughs> i don't prescribe to the theory that nobody owes you anything in life and if you expect nothing out of your friends nothing is exactly what you're gonna get yeah. so i have expectations yeah. and if you want to date me they're incredibly high and i will not lower them for the anyone poor bastard who who decides <laughs> that i am worth anything oh my god just so you all know i've got i read a lot like we said earlier and i've got ridiculous expectations <laughs> But it's good to have which them. is actually funny because all the all the book characters that i'm in love with are those tragic messy don't have their shit together well, but it's always linked to childhood trauma. but they're trying <laughs> there you go it's... that's where i'm at you can be the messy i am messy i am a mess most days but i try <laughs> i'm trying to be always be my most authentic self my best self yes yeah sources for this episode were Helen Caster's Joan of Arc mm -hmm. and Wikipedia. Is Helen Caster the same author of yes. She-Wolves of France? Yes. Well, yeah. the She-Wolves. Total accident. I was just looking up Joan of Arc books and then I saw she'd written one and I liked her other stuff. So all right, all right. you can find us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook at Difficult Damsels, the podcast. I will eventually get on <laughs> making us an Instagram, but again, life has been life is busy, rather busy. 
for the both of us. Please rate and review yes. this podcast. Five wherever. stars only. <laughs> yes, five stars only. Good <laughs> reviews or I will delete them. Just kidding. <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. And yeah, stay difficult. Stay difficult. Thanks for listening. <laughs>